I'm Sylvia Burgos Tofnes, and this is Deep Roots Radio. Every week, my guests help us connect the dots between what we eat and how it's grown because every single food dollar we spend either protects or degrades the environment, produces foods with high nutrition or empty calories, and either helps pay a fair wage or keeps farm workers among the working poor. We get to make that choice every time we push a cart through the grocery store, visit the farmer's market, and eat at a restaurant. I hope you enjoy this interview. And and it's a good home, that that really cool root cellar for my completed fermented vegetables. Mm-hmm. So I've got carrots in there with ginger and kimchi. Um, then I also have some uh, sourdough starters. Okay. That some of them are sitting in the cold, mm-hmm. kind of ready to be rejuvenated when I need to bake again. Mm-hmm. And others are sitting out at the counter ready for the bake that I'll be doing today. Okay. You know, and the thing that is kind of funny about all of this is that it really doesn't take a whole lot of my time. Hmm. It doesn't, uh, do- it seems like it would take a lot of time. No, you know, these um, foods sort of take care of themselves. Um, the sourdough starters, you know, bubble along until they get to a certain point, and then you stick them in the fridge. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the fermented vegetables, there is the chopping that you need to do mm-hmm. to get them into the jar. But after that, you kind of leave them on the counter. They, do, they do their own thing? They ferment, yeah. Hmm. They're, they're, I don't. I'm not doing anything to them. I'm just using a process that allows mm-hmm. me to do that, and the bread rises by itself overnight. Mm. And in fact, um, in fact, my students. I'm having a, a baking class today. Ah. My students will learn how to manipulate time and uh, the wetness of the dough, mm-hmm. so that you can actually make it and walk away huh. for half a day or a mm-hmm. night at a time. And not spend a whole lot of your life in the kitchen. Hmm. I mean, more is spent in planning Mm -hmm. than anything else. But what I've tried to do in the last several years is begin to tap some of those skills Mm -hmm. that uh, homemakers used to have in an effort to have a very well, uh, healthful meal on Mm -hmm. the table consistently and those are a lot of the the pieces of of information and experience that um we kind of lost touch with Mm -hmm. in the last 50 years but i'll tell you there is a a lady with us on the line today that has published a cookbook called the nourished kitchen that really brings so many of those skills and ideas back to us in an absolutely beautiful book and in an absolutely accessible manner. Hmm. We've got with us today, Jennifer McGruther. How are you today, Jennifer? I'm very well. How are you? Good, good. Thank you. And we're connecting with one another across the miles. We're here in Amory, Wisconsin, and you are in Colorado. So thank you for, for adjusting to the time difference and being with us this morning. You know, Jennifer, I, I tripped across your book, The Nourished Kitchen, which the, the subtitle says, Farm-to-Table Recipes for Traditional Foods Lifestyles. I came across your book as I was going through Facebook and actually searching for books about fermentation and traditional methods. And I was so um, taken by not only the, the, um, 
the opening, I guess, of your book, which has a lot of your philosophy and, and acknowledges different kinds of approaches by about the photos. You have done cool. a great job, I think, of really pulling us right into your uh, passion for traditional cooking, which, which leads me to my first question. Um, what do you mean by traditional foods and traditional cooking? Traditional foods are the foods of our great-great-grandmothers. They are foods that are um, whole, they are unprocessed, and more than that, they're prepared with time-honored culinary traditions. So we're talking about things like sauerkraut, like sourdough breads, um, broths, and long-simmered soups and stews. And moreover, uh, traditional foods is a philosophy that brings us back to the farm so that we're uh, connecting with farmers who practice sustainable and traditional methods. Oh, good. Good synopsis of what that definition might be. How did you get involved in this? Um, in 2007, my husband and I started a farmer's market. Um, it wasn't until I moved to the middle of the mountains in Colorado that I realized that bananas could be both green and brown at the same time. And it was the rather deplorable produce that we had in the middle of um, the isolated mountain town where I live that caused us to really seek out and search for a better alternative. We kind of live at the end of the road. Um, and so we started farmer, a farmer's market. We started connecting with local growers who um, keep their their steers on, on grass um, that produce pasture-raised eggs and that produce uh, or, organic vegetables here in the region. And it was through that growth um, that I began to approach traditional foods as well. Was that difficult? I mean, you're saying that this happened not that many years ago. You you said that you're at the end of the road, and I think a lot of people who even live in the middle of the city think, I don't know where to find anything. Did you find it hard to start gathering um, a network of people who might be able to share the same kind of values that you do? Certainly it was um, a little bit challenging in the beginning, Um trying to find farmers who had an interest in, in coming to our community to offer offer their, you know, fresh berries in the summertime or their uh, squashes in the, in the wintertime. Um, fortunately, I think that there are many, many resources available for us now that weren't available even a few years ago. Um, you can go and look up farmer's markets in your area, whether you live in a city, uh, a city or a rural area. When you started out, you said uh, this started just back in 2007. One of the things you found is that you didn't have a whole lot of resources, as you said, available to you, uh, either in the way of product or information. And so not everybody would do this, but then you started a blog called The Nourished Table. Tell me a little bit about that experience and what you've seen in the way of growing interest. Absolutely. Um when I began to approach a philosophy of traditional foods, again, that's going back to making your own sauerkraut, to homemade yogurt, to sourdough bread, um, slow-roasted chicken, things like that, there weren't a lot of people talking about um, the traditional foods movement online, and it was a very isolating experience. Uh, so I started Nourish Kitchen in 2007 to sort of reach out to the broader community and hopefully cultivate that. And certainly that's exactly what happened. Uh, we began to see an increase in 
readership in subscriptions to the newsletter as people began to discover their own journeys into whole foods for their families and, and a traditional food philosophy. You know, from I, I noticed that on Facebook, your uh, Facebook page has something like 500,000, actually it's more than 500,000 likes on it. You've got a lot of people who have found you and who are eager for the information that you share. You mentioned when we had a chat yesterday that when um, when you had started out in this effort, um, there weren't that many who were finding your page and how that um, those searches have grown. Can you give me the, that figure again? Absolutely. So, for example, I know that we're hearing a lot about bone broth right now. Bone broth is on NPR. It's in the New York Times. Um, restaurants are opening up about uh, devoted to bone broth. Um, so Nourish Kitchen has, has always held one of the top three spots in Google uh, for the search term bone broth. Now, three years ago, we'd maybe get 60 hits a day on that keyword, and now it's about 1,200 on average. So it's an indication to me of a growing interest in traditional foods and approaching um, home cooking home cooking in a new way, in a new old way, if you will. And certainly uh, the readership of Nourish Kitchen has grown considerably. It used to be just a handful of of people who happened to be interested in the same way of cooking that I was. And now Nourish Kitchen reaches, you know, over 500,000 people on Facebook, as well as, you know, over 100,000 people on our newsletter list. And and, um, nearly a million people visit the site each month. So I think that... We're, we as a culture are beginning to go back to our roots, and that's always a positive thing. One of the things uh, my husband and I were just talking about this morning uh, as I was getting ready to, to come here to the radio station was just how big this interest is. You know, people want to know, how do I find healthful foods? And once I find a healthful ingredient, how do I translate that into a, a delicious meal? And I think that your cookbook does such a terrific job of making that doable. You know, the thing that you mentioned, though, too, is uh, when you defined traditional foods and lifestyle, you you mentioned the foods that our great-grandparents ate and some of the methods that they used. Someone might hear that and say, oh, my gosh, these people are Luddites. You know, they just want to go back and live in a cave somewhere and, and cook everything slowly. But... That's not the case in in your cookbook because it's based on a lot of scientific um, data, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, my focus is, is always good and delicious food. I think that that um, good flavor will always bring us back to the table. But what we're finding is when we approach our cooking with a mind toward uh, culinary tradition, we're actually discovering some of our lost roots to health. For example... Um, bone broth, uh, chicken soup, and things like that are deeply nourishing, not only because they're a rich source of protein um, and a, a decent source of minerals, but also because that they, they actually play a role in helping to mitigate the effects of colds and flus. Um, for example, ferment, fermentation, fermented foods um, are rich in probiotics, which help to heal our gut and develop our immune system. Uh, kind of train it and test it, and 
as well as um, increase the amount of B vitamins in the foods that we already eat. So, for example, uh, milk kefir is richer in folate. Folate is a nutrient that women of reproductive age need because it has the ability to mitigate the uh, potential risks of neural tube defects. Fermented foods are rich in folate, and so they are a deeply nourishing food. Um, so when we approach uh, our foods and the foods on our kitchen table, not only with a mind for pleasure and enjoyment, but also with a mind for what they can do for us, I think that we'll find that our health improves as well as our, our joy at the table. One of the things that I found very um, useful about the, the opening pages of your book and then the, the, the uh, recipes, which are very easy to follow in the book, um, is that you do cite, and, and again, it's going back to this scientific basis, you do cite um, the work of the Weston A. Price Foundation. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, and how that plays a role in your own thinking? Certainly. The Weston A. Price Foundation is an educational um, nonprofit They're based out of D.C., and they are devoted to reviving uh, the place of traditional foods in the modern diet, so of nutrient-dense, wholesome foods in the modern diet. Their emphasis uh, includes a lot of animal foods, so we embrace things like butter and eggs and beef and broth, as well as plant foods. And more importantly, their approach, um, like my own, is one that is rooted in tradition. So they begin to investigate the role uh, that traditional preparation of foods, for example, sourdough bread um, over quick rice bread, can play in our lives and, and in our health in general. Um, the Westman Christ Foundation, their philosophy and their principles are based on the the work of Dr. Westman Price, who was a dentist in the early 20th century, and in his practice, he began to notice a degeneration of health, especially in young people, cavities in very, very small children, um, malformations of the palate, and and, and not only um, those kinds of issues, but broader issues with the, with regard to health. And he he wondered why that was, and so he traveled the globe, analyzing the diets of people who adhered to their traditional foods. That is, the foods of their ancestors in absence of modern foods, and he compared that to the same people who had access to modern foods. Modern foods for him were things like uh, refined white flour, refined sugars, refined vegetable oils. And he found that those people who adhered to their traditional diets, which were comprised uh, largely of local foods available to them uh, to them within from within their region, um, and those people who avoided modern foods, you know, white flour, white sugar, um, vegetable oils, and things like this, their their health was dramatically improved over um, the health of people who adhered to a more modern diet that was inclusive of those those foods. He found that their diets were dramatically uh, rich in fat-soluble vitamins, vitamins A, D, and K2. Um, they were also... Uh, very, very rich in minerals, more uh, richer in minerals than modern diets. And so uh, he did quite a bit of research on that, uh, quite a bit of research on sacred foods, for example, foods that our ancestors 
uh, held sacred, maybe reserving for you know young children or, or pregnant breastfeeding mothers, and found that those were also particularly nutrient dense. And so uh, my work and the work of the Wesley Price Foundation is focused on bringing back uh, those nutrient-dense traditional foods and improving our health from that. What you say, um, Jennifer, and, and if you've just joined us this morning, we are uh, chatting with Jennifer McGruther, who is the author of the book and the blog, The Nourished Kitchen, Farm-to-Table Recipes for the Traditional Foods Lifestyle. Jennifer, what you've just said really puts me to the mind of how I ate when I was a little kid in my grandmother's kitchen, Um, where we had, uh, being Hispanic, we didn't have a lot of beef in our diet, having come from an island, but rather pork. And the pork at that time was not the ultra lean pork that we have nowadays, but it was the, the fatty pork that was more prevalent in the 50s. I can't tell you how much I loved scraping the fat off of the uh, crackling rind of that pork when it was made and came out of the, uh, the oven after having slow roasted for, I don't know, it felt like forever, probably was six, seven, eight hours, and the skin having been scored and um, stuffed with salt, pepper, and loads of garlic. It makes me feel good about that um, because things had changed so much in the in the subsequent 50 years where everything was pushed was um, margarines and these very strange oils. And so when I think about my grandmother's cauldron of rice that was um, liberally mixed with lard, you know, she was ahead of her time because she was of her time, I guess. And, And we're here, I think, struggling to figure out how do we incorporate those foods of yesteryear that had gotten such a bad name um, in the latter part of the 20th century and pull them back to the table. How long did it take you to pull your book together? It was a two-year process. It was a year to write, and it was a year for my publisher, 10 Speed Press, to put together the design work and, and, and the editing and things like that. So it was a two-year process, although, um, like many authors, I began working on the book um, prior to that, you know, developing the recipes, developing the philosophy, and approaching farmers um, so that we could take beautiful photographs of their orchards and of their animals. You've talked about two things that that come uh, seem to hit me. One is you talk about the ingredients, the quality of the ingredients, and then you talk about the cooking methods or technology or uh, approaches. How important and how tied are these two ideas, both the ingredients and the approaches? I think that both are are critical. I believe that our food should be grown with integrity and prepared with intention. And I think when those two things combine, we can nourish our families the best. Um, So it's important to reach out to local farmers where and how you can um, to ask for grass-fed beef. Grass-fed beef, for example, is very high um, in conjugated linoleic acid, which is a healthy fat that is anti-carcinogenic. Um, it's also got a favorable ratio of omega-3s to omega-6s. We know how good those omega-3s are. We also know that pasture-raised eggs, eggs from hens that are outside pecking at the ground and, and eating sprouts and bugs, um, are richer in vitamin A and vitamin E. Uh, and so there's there's a beautiful thing to to help a local family who is producing your food 
by buying directly from them. And moreover, to get more nutrition and flavor from what you purchase, because again, it's richer in nutrients than, than the than the foods that you might buy at the grocery store. And coupled with that, as you take it into your kitchen and begin to prepare it with intention, um, you take your time, you can enjoy your time in the kitchen that way, and also um, you can improve the nutrient profile of those already nutrient-dense foods. For example, when you prepare sourdough bread, it is richer in B vitamins and lower in the glycemic index than even a regular whole wheat bread that you might make. Um, and again, fermented foods are richer in B vitamins, and they're a wonderful source of probiotic bacteria. You know, I had a, a, a customer come out to the farm a couple, three weeks ago, and uh, she was lamenting. She was saying that, you know, it takes me forever to find the farmers that we need. And my gosh, I feel like I'm like, I, if, if I really do this whole hog, I'm just going to be spending all of my life in the kitchen. How do you respond to that, Jennifer? I, you know, I, I would disagree with that, although it may feel that way when we begin to approach um, cooking from scratch. It can feel very, very intimidating, especially when we're coming from a culture that values quickness mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and fast foods. It can be very intimidating. But the truth is, cooking traditional foods doesn't take an extraordinary uh, amount of time. Remember, our great-grandmothers and, and their great-grandmothers we're also very busy. They didn't have the modern conveniences that we have, like dishwashers and, and um, cars and things like that. So they were very busy as well. And you'll find that most of these techniques, while you will be cooking from scratch, are don't really require an enormous amount of time in the kitchen. For example, uh, to prepare a wonderful beef stew, all you have to do is take out your slow cooker, top in your grass-fed beef, some vegetables, some broth, cover it up. And then at the end of the day, you have um, dinner ready. And so the whole process maybe takes you about five minutes, and you have a wonderful, nutritious, wholesome meal. Uh, fermented foods also are very, very easy. Say you want to start making your own yogurt. It may feel very intimidating to think of, of doing it from scratch, but all it takes is uh, stirring some established yogurt, so yogurt you can find at the grocery store, with whole milk, stirring it up, and setting it in a warm place for, you know, 8 to 12 hours. That takes, a, you know, maybe 3 or 4 minutes, and then at the end of the 8 to 12 hours where it's just kind of rested, you have homemade yogurt. So traditional foods may require a little more planning, but they don't require more time in the kitchen. You know, and they also don't require a lot of sophisticated or, or strange equipment, I guess. No. Because you just mentioned the yogurt, and uh, I know I certainly have been tempted to buy a yogurt maker machine. Um, it's something that keeps the yogurt at a, at a specific temperature for four to eight or 12 hours. But you know, I ended up using an extra cooler, warming it up with water on the inside, kind of stuffing towels around the, the warmed uh, yogurt culture mix and using an old uh, heating pad over the top to keep the thing at a at a warm temperature and I would I would monitor the the temperature every once in a while but that did the trick mm -hmm. if you find yourself using making yogurt a lot I'm, I'm sure that it would pay to get uh, perhaps a slightly more sophisticated setup 
but it's it's really about that planning, and I, and I think you've hit that right on the head, Jennifer. You know, as I as I take a look through the book, I, I'll tell you, it's hard for me to 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 land on a page and not say, I want to try that. I want to try that. But as you were writing it and pulling it together, were there one or two recipes that kind of stuck out for you as as being either a challenge or, or you were particularly satisfied with? One of my favorite recipes from the book is the Concord Great Sorbet. Um, it's a wonderful recipe. It's, it's only a handful of ingredients, Concord grapes, honey, rosemary, and black pepper. And it was so beautiful that we, we made it five or six times just because we enjoyed it. Um, that is one of my favorite recipes from the book. And, and again, Concord grapes are very seasonal. You'll mm-hmm. find them in September typically. Um, we also really like the wild mushroom soup. And again, it's just a handful of very simple ingredients, broth, butter, shallots, mushrooms, um, and a little bit of cream. And it is, it's a lovely recipe. And, and those were some of my favorites from the cookbook. And of course my, my son's favorite uh, is the chicken liver pate that's in there. Mm. Oh, liver pate, so delicious and so within our reach, which is really nice. You know, Dave Corbett, I've seen you. I've been looking at you as we've been doing this show together. I was wondering, any questions from you? One of the uh, things that comes to mind is, now I saw something in the news again here the other day where they're deciding that now maybe eggs aren't so bad for us. <laughs> Do you think that a lot of the... Uh, scare that has come from traditional cooking is because we've uh, processed things so much and it's not necessarily the uh, ingredients themselves that are causing the trouble? I Yes, I would agree with that. I think that um, certainly we've, we've processed our food so that there's so that there's so little nutrition in it that we actually have to fortify it with synthetic vitamins. When if we just approached uh, whole foods and cooked with them, we would we would have a, a lot of nourishment and it's less expensive. Uh, I also think that you know as an American culture, we tend to have a very um, this uh, an unstable relationship with food, where it's either good or bad, and there's very little gray area. So the government says eggs are, are bad for you. You should limit them one decade, and then the next decade they're a superfood. I think maybe if we took a little more balance in our kitchen, just like our you know great-great-grandmothers did, we might have a healthier relationship with food, first of all, and then a, um, better health in general. Well, thanks. Well, Jennifer, we're, we're coming to the end of our time together. It's, it's gone by quickly. And I wanted to know if you might be able to provide some contact information or some websites so that people might learn more about The Nourished Kitchen. Absolutely. You can visit my website, which is nourishedkitchen.com, and you can contact us at support at nourishedkitchen.com, and I'm happy to answer any questions you might have when and when I am able to. And you can also reach, about, uh, reach out to us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Nourish Kitchen. And another great resource is the West St. Price Foundation, and you can visit them at westmainprice.org. Uh, and you might find a local chapter near you, and those chapters are an invaluable resource where they can help, help connect you with local farmers. Visit my website, bronxtobarn.com, to download this and past interviews to learn about my farm, and to reserve 100% grass-fed beef. We deliver to Minneapolis and St. Paul, Minnesota. Thanks.